0: This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Young people are increasingly spending more time consuming media on their digital devices each day, whether through social media, streaming movies and television, news outlets, YouTube videos created by influencers, and more navigating this bewildering array of images and ideas can be overwhelming. Now, the newly formed Media Revolution Collective has written its first book. It's called The Media and Me, a guide to critical media literacy for young people. The book was written in conjunction with Project Censored, one of the preeminent anti-censorship and media literacy advocacy organizations in the US for nearly 50 years. My guest is Alison T. Butler, senior lecturer and the uh, director of undergraduate advising and the director of the media literacy certificate program in the Department of Communications at University of Massachusetts Amherst, where she teaches courses on critical media literacy and representations of education in the media. She also co-directs the grassroots organization, Mass Media Literacy where she has developed and runs teacher trainings for the inclusion of critical media literacy in K-12 schools. And she's one of the contributors to the new anthology, The Media and Me. Welcome to the program, Alison.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So first, let's talk about the fact that we do live in this unprecedented time when there is more stuff to consume than ever before, more easily than ever before through a handheld device. Um, I have a teenage son and... I have to constantly remind him to put his phone down and look at real objects. This is unprecedented. Is this one big reason why you and your co-authors put this book together?
1: Uh, Yes, absolutely. I mean, we are looking at the world of, uh, you can just be kind of constantly on. Um, And we don't want to punish people for being on. I understand what you're saying about your teenage son, but I would also say like, that could be us, right? I mean, it could be the grownups too, um, where we need to be reminded sometimes to put our phones down as well. But uh, part of our motivation for this text was in our work with critical media literacy across a variety of fields, we recognized that there just wasn't anything that was specifically talking with young people. Uh, There's a lot of stuff for teachers, which is great, uh, but there wasn't anything that was directed specifically to young people. And so that was one of our motivations was like, hey, you know what? You deserve to learn about this world that you're growing up in, this incredibly mediated world. We want to make sure that you have the skills to understand it, more thoroughly.
0: And how do you explain media literacy anyway? It's not, unfortunately, uh, the kind of thing that's regularly taught, especially in K through 12 schools. And even a lot of colleges don't really offer it. Or if it's offered, it's a course that's usually elective. So what is media literacy?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that is definitely also a part of our work, is wanting to get media literacy to be in more classrooms um, and to have it be something that we actually don't need to spend too much time defining because people know what it is. But media literacy in brief is the ability to access, analyze, and produce a variety of media. And then when we talk about critical media literacy, what we're talking about is taking um, a real big picture view by looking behind the scenes, looking at the role of power, looking at uh, ownership, production, and distribution. How did these texts, so many of us pay attention to the content of our media, of course, right? It's what entertains us, it's what informs us, but critical media literacy is really taking um, an approach to look behind it. How did it get to us? That content wouldn't have gotten to us without those owners or producers or distributors. Uh, So that's a lot of our work too. Um, And we don't use the term critical to mean negative, right? One of the things that we say in the book and one of the things that we say in so much of our work is to be critical isn't to dislike, it's to take a bit of a step back. Um, it's to try and look at our texts in their context, to see them um, as multi-dimensional things out there that we can study from a variety of angles. So it's, it's about a bit of distance, not about dislike at all
0: i sometimes think about uh, media literacy as um being aware of you know similar to being aware of where your food comes from right you want to know uh, knowing where it was produced how it was processed where it came to you gives you a better idea of how much nutrition it has similarly your media diet if you know its origins it can help you understand the motivations and what exactly that media maker or the content producer is is trying to achieve. And that's important,
1: right? absolutely absolutely i mean one of the things that we can think about i i love that that metaphor of you know this idea of our media diet like what is it that we are consuming what is it and and there's a process with consumption right it's not just money although that's probably a really common understanding of consumption it's our time it's our energy um it is our health to some extent right so having a better idea of what it is that we are consuming is really really important when we think about it being in education you know back to your point before about how it's not often taught in K-12 through 12 or in higher education for that matter. I don't think we would could ever imagine sending our children to school where we didn't teach them math or the basics of regular, like a good old fashioned black dots on a white page literacy. We teach our students science. We teach them about their communities. Why is it that we don't teach them about the media? So many of our young people are engaged with the media from, from extremely early on. Uh, let's start learning about it from early on as well. So where
0: do you uh, start in this book? I, I confess that when I started reading it, um, I felt that it is a book that's not necessarily for young people alone because I felt like I learned a lot from it. I, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm in the media. I'm an adult. I should know most of these things. <laughs> and I felt like there were things that I didn't know either. Um, so you, you go pretty deep. Tell me, tell me where you start in the educational curriculum for a young person on critical media literacy.
1: Absolutely. And I'm really glad that it that it was informative for you. We don't want to see this book as something isolated um, or alone. If it's something that families can read together. Great. You know, we've gotten a lot of feedback from that, that it's not just young people. Some of our early readers were um, Young people as well as college students, uh, and they were like, "Hey, we could use this in our college classes too." So, so we're starting to see. But basically, what we try and do is provide, um, provide. A, we start by trying to provide a way of understanding the media that you and I can spend a lot of time watching, reading, or listening to, and can probably be perfectly happy with that. Uh, but if we want to know more this is an opportunity to go deeper into that so we define uh media and media literacy and we try and show how broad that can all be we talk about critical thinking um we have a chapter on our own uh interpersonal communication we look into some of the big things like stereotypes and representation Um, we look across different media so we'll talk about movies but we'll also talk about music and then what we think is That we were really committed to throughout the whole process was not ending with just this idea of, okay, now, you know, this stuff, right? We actually wanted it to be an opportunity for young people who might want to make change in their communities. Right? Part of critical media literacy is. Change making Um, it's 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 connected deeply to social justice and we know that not all young people are going to necessarily become activists, but maybe what change can you make for yourself. How can you basically by reading this book you're starting to think differently you're seeing the media differently, Uh, but maybe you want to make a little bit more proactive change, so we end the book with uh, different opportunities for both small and widespread changes that young people can do and any one of us can do.
0: The word media itself is just so broad. Um, you know, I generally, when I say media, I refer to the news media, but there's just so much more to it. So uh, today, a lot of young people get their information from what are called influencers, right? Um, and they could be people who have a large following because they, you know, are uh, the pe- folks that young people can relate to. Maybe they talk about fashion or food or music but then they sort of sprinkle in endorsements and sometimes it's clear sometimes it's not whether they're paid to do the endorsements sometimes they have political views and shape how people think so let's talk I feel like this the idea of the influencer is really important precisely because they are influencers what should young people know that you say in your book about influencers
1: I mean You know, influencers can potentially teach us a lot, right? One of the things that we try and take a position on in the book and in all of our work is that this isn't a question of good, bad, or right, wrong. And we're really not aiming to punish anybody. Uh, Influencers, I think, can do a lot of good in the sense that Maybe for young people living in isolated communities who might not see people who look like themselves or who might be in slightly more repressed places, particularly I'm thinking of LGBTQ youth who might not be in environments that are supportive of that. Those influencers can remind these young people that they're not alone, that they're not isolated, right? That can be incredibly valuable and incredibly supportive. At the same time, we have to remember that part of the reason why these folks are influencers is because of their endorsements is because they're often uh, getting paid um, and maybe getting paid a lot of money to name products anytime something comes out that is branded right that we get a product name that had to have been agreed upon right So that's a business. that's this person's work um, It might be non-traditional work it might be it might not be work that clocks in from nine to five but it's carefully constructed work. Uh, Our influencers who are doing stuff maybe on like fashion or um, cosmetics, they're not just popping up on the screen, right? There's there's a lot of careful production value behind that so that they are the most prepared for this fashion or this cosmetic or so on and so forth. And so I think what we would want um, our readers to know, what we would want anybody to know is that that influencing isn't just about Being there it in and of itself is constructed, right? Those images, those messages, that language, they are very carefully produced. That doesn't necessarily automatically make them disingenuous, but it does mean that they're not spontaneous. They're not um, organic. They're very carefully constructed and we think our audiences, all of us deserve to have a much greater understanding of that construction.
0: You have a, a section on advertising and consumerism, and these days, uh, because young people are, are savvy about advertising, you know, it seems as though that that's a big reason why influencers are paid to advertise products because it's um it's a little stealthier. Um, we've seen the return, uh, you know, in in full force of product placement and TV shows and movies. Um, So it certainly seems as though that's a a really important thing to to know how to identify. But uh, isn't that also the reason why we have advertisers in our media is because most of our media is for-profit content production. Um, News media and journalism is primarily supposed to be there to in, inform, but by and large, our mainstream news sources are also for profit. Therefore, they rely on advertising. And these days, there's much more than news media that relies on advertising. So, so how, how do you deal with the capitalist aspect of media in this
1: guide? I mean, one thing that first of all, we start by talking about capitalism, right? We start by talking about exactly what you just said, that the vast majority of our mainstream media are corporate media, and therefore within our current capitalist economic system, their goal is to profit. Their goal is to make as much money as possible. If you and I happen to be entertained or informed along the way great but profit is their number one goal uh and so that's what they're drawing our eyeballs or our ears into is to help support their profit anything we hover over anything we click on advertisements that are on our tv shows if we're watching them on regular tv my goodness even the screens that pop up in gas stations right as soon as we start pumping our gas we're potentially getting advertisements um, on those screens uh depending on where we are so we really want to start by sort of making sure that folks are aware of that environment and once you're aware of that environment once you see it again that that behind the scenes work you're not going to unsee it it becomes kind of a new language uh with which you're fluent And then maybe you can start to make different choices, or you can start to understand better. Do you need to be paying attention to these corporate media? What about independent media? What about not-for-profit media? Uh, What about understanding Maybe who their advertisers are right who who are they doing business with and are you okay with that so that again you're making more informed choices Uh, oftentimes it's an opportunity to learn about other media again like i said independent media that might not be so obvious to us right that might not be so easily available we might have to do a little bit of work to get to know that but maybe that aligns with our worldview or our ethics even more. Again, as I've said, we don't punish anybody's media, we have no interest in punishing anybody's media choices, but we also wanna be able to provide the opportunity for folks to have a greater understanding of their media choices.
0: What about um, video games? I mean, this is uh, not necessarily traditionally thought of as media, but people are playing them on their devices. They are more and more integrated into other forms of media um you know it's it's uh it seems harmless uh if depending on who you're talking to or the most you know the biggest source of all evil and and the worst influence on your child depending on you know if you're talking to someone else Um, where do you fall and your fellow authors fall on this issue of video games
1: yeah video games uh, video games have such a contested history in in our media environment as well as in media literacy right for a long time video games were getting a lot of negative attention understandably so for um just the Utter promotion of violence, right? And we know that video game manufacturers have relationships um, with gun manufacturers, where that, in and of itself, becomes an advertisement within the digital environment, right? Um, we know certainly with sports video games that that ha- that is, you know, uh, endorsement relationships with athletes um, or with teams or so on and so forth, right? So I think video games are a much more complicated and complex terrain. Um, I think they've often been treated as um, just problematic. Uh, and I think part of our work in critical media literacy is to say they are problematic, and right, there's a lot of other stuff going on with them. Um, but i think like anything else if soon as we punish something like a video game then it becomes that much more enticing Mm -hmm. so what is it that we can learn how is it that we can understand video games as being more complex we live in a highly digitized society what is it that gaming can teach us how can gaming potentially teach us about you know the world that we live in why are young people playing so many video games what is it they're getting out of it it serves a purpose right i don't necessarily know what that purpose is i've probably aged out of it if i was ever part of it right uh but it, it means something so how can we begin to sort of ask questions and engage in communication um what does it mean to learn violence through a video game oftentimes there's ways of understanding that that show that like it is it is a way of grappling with really complicated issues that most of us don't want to learn firsthand and maybe taking it from a gaming position allows us to see that uh, and learn about it in a really abstract concept like violence and understand it from a distance. That could be potentially a way of learning. A lot of what we're really interested in doing is kind of destigmatizing some of the labels that are put on so that we can kind of understand our part and our role in them. Doesn't mean they're not worthy of critique. Absolutely worthy of critique. And also how do we fit into them?
0: Let's talk about the issue of representation. There was a time when, you know, we sort of The society as a whole accepted that it was okay to have movies and TV shows with almost entirely white casts or, um, you know, mostly men who are protagonists or everyone was perfect and able-bodied. We're seeing that changing today. Um, How do you teach young people about the importance of representation, even young people of color sometimes, um, you know, because they've been exposed to of poor representation don't necessarily think about seeing themselves on screen till they do see themselves on screen. And then there's a revelation and it's not just race, it's gender, sexual orientation, it's disability. So tell me about that chapter in your book.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that we try and do in that chapter is cut across a lot of different, as you've listed, a lot of different types of representation. And I think one thing that we also are, are, Concerned with is that, especially with visual representation, the absence of data is data, right? Who's not being seen? Who's not being seen as a good character? Who's only being seen as a bad character, right? So, trying to look at what's not there um, and understand what's not there, and particularly for young audiences of color, how are the people who look like them in the media being represented? Are they always bad? Are they always a sidekick? Are they always killed off? Or are they always, you know, the presumed killer. Um so really trying to take apart what that um what those images are, but again, that emphasis on the behind the scenes. Who are the writers? Who are the producers? Who are the directors? How did these stories get to us? Uh once they're with us, they're really important to analyze, but how did they get to us? One thing we try not to do in the book is provide too many um, trendy examples, because we don't want the book to be outdated. But one example that I like to bring up a lot is a streaming show that's on Hulu called Reservation Dogs, and it's about four native teenagers living on a reservation in Oklahoma. Uh, and it goes through a lot of their struggles. Uh, their friend, they have a friend who died, and it's um, two seasons based basically of these teenagers grappling with the death of their friend. And what's also, I think, really fascinating about this show is the entire production is indigenous. It's indigenous writers, directors, producers, cast, the clothing is often made by indigenous artists. The, the graffiti in the background, the music, everything. So this is another way of looking at representation. Again, it's not just what's on the screen, but who's bringing it to us. What does it mean? Who's in the writer's room? Who's greenlit this to give it some money so that it can be produced? So we want to really also address all of the things that bring that story to our screens and then how we can understand them as viewers.
0: It is an absolutely amazing show. I enjoy that very much. And I highly recommend it to our audience who hasn't seen Reservation Dogs yet. So let's wrap up our conversation with uh, what can people do, Uh, which is, of course, the most critical aspect of any kind of um, guide. Um, you, You refer to a term that I don't know, maybe those of us in, 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 in your and my generation are very familiar with, which is culture jamming. It's not yes. maybe as known among younger audiences. So w- what is culture jamming and, and, and what are that and other ways in which people can actively do something about the fact that we do live in a world where so many things are skewed and there are so many forces trying to shape our ideas.
1: Yeah, culture jamming comes to us from uh, ad busters, and it's all about talking back to the media, right? So one thing that can happen, which we don't want to happen, um, when people, any one of us learn something about the media and get that really multi-dimensional perspective, do that critical inquiry, is it can, it can sometimes leave a sense of like, well, now what? Right now, what am I, now that I know this, now what am I supposed to do? And that's a lot of what culture jamming does, is it gives us the opportunity to talk back. It takes pretty complicated um visual messages and says hey here's what's actually being said to us here's what's actually being sold to us and it talks back when i work on culture jamming in my classroom um, i try and give them a place for uh, it, it to be seen beyond the walls of the classroom so i'll take pics of their culture jams and i'll put them up on various um You know, Facebook groups that I'm on or other social media so that somebody beyond our classroom can see it and others can say, hey, I hadn't thought about that ad in that way. So it gives an opportunity to kind of talk back uh, to the media and that's what we're hoping for with uh, with this text is that we provide young people, any of our readers with an opportunity to potentially think maybe behave a little bit differently. Um, I think a couple of easy things if you're not really ready um, or interested in in arts and crafts. Uh, I, must, I always tell my students when we do that project, this is not, you're not being graded on your artistic ability, <laughs> right? This is this is just, this is so that we can actually be involved and be doing something. Uh, but we can all do that without necessarily arts and crafts, right? The first thing we can do is slow down. So much of our media encourages us to be really fast, scroll really quickly through, slow down read the headlines read the articles take some time with it see what it is that you've potentially all of us potentially have been kind of mindlessly rolling through um i think we can also try and change our choice making a little bit right turn off it's so easy on our phones for all of the world to come to us for all those notifications to be kind of pinging us constantly turn off notifications Doesn't mean you're not gonna read the headlines or check that text message or look at that pic, but how about you take a few moments a day, a weekend, whatever so that you're choosing to do that versus your phone choosing it for you, right? So that I can be in charge of when I want to read a headline or I cannot be dictated by the ping of my phone for text messages coming up, right? Um, Those are little things. I think also we can think about our vocabulary, right? We all know that we can go online and type a question into a search bar and get an answer. We don't necessarily need to use the word Google. Right. How about we just sort of take back some of our vocabulary? What does it mean to search? What does it mean to ask questions? We can take it away from being a branded thing. Even if we're not using Google, we just use it as a verb, right? If we take away some of that branded language, Mm. we're then taking a little bit more agency over our own media participation.
0: I suppose we can use the term search engine. (laughs) I could search,
1: exactly. It's actually faster. It's one syllable.
0: (laughs) And I mean, your book, I'm sure, uh, I haven't read the entire thing, but I imagine that you may not have uh, quite caught up to the AI revolution that has unfolded just in the past couple of months where we now have software that's easily, widely, and freely available for people to write essays for themselves or create art for themselves. Uh, We're seeing educators scrambling to change curriculums because they're finding that ChatGPT is, uh, which is this AI software where you can tell them to write essays um, and they will spit out great original seeming content. Um, I imagine that, that this is also a bit of a game changer. Any thoughts that didn't make it into your book on AI?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say that a lot of what we would think about this is we would want people to stop being paranoid, to stop being scared. Yes, Mm. it's a huge change. And if you apply the tools of critical media literacy maybe we can understand the function of chat gpt the function of ai these are not sentient technologies right these are not this is not the machine come to life of like the 1980s techno dystopian movies these are things that are um, produced by humans right the the technology is built by humans so a lot of what we're seeing in chat gpt and ai reflects the human element it reflects all of our thoughts problematic and otherwise on race and gender and class uh yes these are probably grammatically perfect papers but they carry with them the human element um so I, what we would argue and what we do argue is let's spend a little bit more time understanding what chat gpt is before we're just overwhelmed and scared of it. And at the same time, we're all learning about this, right? One of the things that critical media literacy wants to do in the classroom is to have it be student centered um, and ha- to have it be a collaborative process between teacher and student. So at this point in time, teacher and student are learning about chat GPT and AI together. How about we bring it into the classroom together? We can each learn. We can learn what its purpose is. We can learn how it's working and you know for the most part i don't think students cheat for the sake of mean, sure there's definitely students that are going to cheat for the sake of cheating they kind of want to get one over but most of what we see is students cheating because they're backed into a corner so let's spend a little time thinking about what backs students into a corner what's going on with our economic structure of education what's happening when it comes to students in higher education in particular who have to work in order to pay their tuition which therefore means less time for study Why is college so expensive? We can really use ChatGPT to better understand our relationship to education. We can make it make sense to each of us together in collaboration. AI does a lot. Social media does a lot to keep us isolated. This would be a really good opportunity, I think, to chip away at some of that isolation.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much, Allison, for joining us. Uh, Is there a website that you can recommend to find out more aside from the recommendation to? get a hold of your book and
1: yeah I mean if if you're if you're a student um, get a hold of this book if you're in higher ed um, I would recommend the project censored website especially if you're interested in bringing some of this work to your students they have a great project the verified independent news story all of that can be found on the project censored website if you're a teacher who's looking to try and bring some of this work to your classroom please check out massmedialiteracy.org we'll work with you to develop curriculum we'll physically or digitally come to your classrooms and help you build lesson plans, let us know how we can help. We don't want this book to just be sitting there. We really wanna be working with teachers and librarians um, and students to make it really the most valuable that it can be.
0: And we'll post some of those links from our website too. Thank you so much, Thanks. Allison.
1: Thank you so much.
0: My guest has been Alison T. Butler, Senior Lecturer and Director of Undergraduate Advising and the Director of the Media Literacy Certificate Program at the Department of Communication at UMass Amherst. She also co-directs the grassroots organization, Mass Media Literacy, and she's one of the contributors to the new anthology, The Media and Me, a guide to critical media literacy for young people that we've just been discussing. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.